a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Welcome to the British TV podcast, number show 18. Yay. Hip hip hooray. Please welcome your co-host. Ryan in Seattle. I am Chrissy in Seattle. This week's episode, we have news, what's on British TV this week, what's running in the United States, DVD releases, listener feedback. Really? Listener? Yes, our only listener has written in. (laughs) And a feature on BBC One versus BBC Two. How's your week been, Chrissy? It's been busy. I've been busy too. I've been so busy I haven't had a chance to watch any British TV. Wow. I've watched a bit, but I've been... Engrossed in the uh, continuing Haiti relief because I work for a nonprofit and we're raising money, money, money to give to Haiti as it starts to recover. So that's been my focus from nine to five every day. So it's good to have some good telly to wind down. What have you seen? I've just been watching things that have, are ongoing QI. How are they? Excellent as usual. I'm looking forward to seeing those at some point here when I. Come up for air myself. It's just been so crazy. All I've had a time to do is listen to that audiobook you let me, The Prisoner of the Daleks, mm-hmm. with uh, Nicholas Briggs. Yeah, he's a good reader out louder. And if David Tennant ever falls down a manhole, he does a really good David Tennant impersonation. He does. He's got the cadence just right. But then he is a voiceover artist as well as a pretty good actor. So And he does those Dalek voices. He does them all. He does the Cybermen and the Jadoon and... Probably everybody else. Were. He's he's a good one. Yeah, so I'm kind of new to audiobooks. My wife's been listening to those for several years. She likes to have them on during her commutes to make them less stressful. But I don't have any kind of DVD player or cassette player in my car. I just have uh, AM, FM radio. So it's a whole new world. Well, of course, with Doctor Who, you've got both the audio books yes. and then the audio adventures with a whole cast. Although the books, if you, our listener, has not heard them, does they do have the sound effects from time to time and bits of background music and noises just to add to the atmosphere. Yeah. But it is just one person. And it's great fun when David Tennant reads them because he's speaking with his genuine Scottish accent. And then as he reads a doctor line, he will become the doctor. And he can flip back and forth between all sorts of accents. It will, too. I only read the Doctor Who novels back in the early 90s when they were first starting to come out when I was living in England because my landlady would buy them all and I would just read them. Mm -hmm. And so the last time I probably read one was 96. So I'm really out of touch with that. I'm sort of one of those guys where if it's not canon, if it's not on TV, it's not real. Mm -hmm. So, you know, plus the fact that I read like three books a year now, I'm just too busy watching TV. All right, so shall we get to the show? Okay. News. Desperate Housewives boss Mark Cherry has accomplished his mission to bring Captain Jack to Wisteria Lane. Hey. A Desperate Housewives insider has confirmed that Torchwood's John Barrowman is joining the ABC soap later this season for a minimum of five episodes. The actor will play the big bad at the center of the Angie mystery. Last summer, Cherry, a big Torchwood fan, met with Barrowman to discuss the possibility of him visiting Wisteria Lane at some point. It was just a matter of finding the right role. So Barrowman's arc will kick off in early April and span the final five episodes of the season. Do we have any word at all of the future of Torchwood? 
Uh, not the American version. Going to abandon the British version? And I Well, probably if it's Russell Davies doing it, he's going to focus on the American one mm-hmm. for a while. So I don't know. All I can think of is that uh, somewhere David Tennant's going, Barrowman! Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, John's going to be the first guy to get on network television. The NBC has not decided to go ahead right now with Rex is Not Your Lawyer. They might pick it up in the fall, but it's not going to be on in the spring here, even though they now have five extra hours of primetime to fill up, thanks to Jay Leno's Mm -hmm. departure. But that's not one of them. So congratulations to Oscar nominees Carrie Mulligan in the Best Actress category for an education. She's excellent. I highly recommend that movie. Colin Firth for A Single Man. Helen Mirren for The Last Station, and Armando Iannucci, Jesse Armstrong, Simon Blackwell, and Tony Roche for Best Adapted Screenplay for In the Loop, starring Peter Capaldi. Iannucci wrote on Twitter, Blumenek, In the Loop nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar, Bonk Me Purple. Oh, what a card he is. (laughs) Yeah, so cool. Last week on Mastermind, the quiz show for intellectuals, poor Cajun Thurassingham scored the fewest points ever with only five points, four of which came on his specialist subject, Mustafa Ataturk, the founder of Turkey, and one general knowledge question. Succumbing to a case of nerves, afterward he told the BBC, I tried my best, but it wasn't my night. Oh, gracious. So he's going to join, say, Michael Fish and the canon of people that get brought up Forever and ever. (laughs) There was a guy last year who scored seven points. This guy has scored fewer than that. Now, last week was the Jeopardy online test here. It used to be you had to go to New York or Los Angeles and do a written test to get on Jeopardy, but now you can just do it on the internet. Mm -hmm. And my wife and several people that I know took this test. And of course, they never give you the answers. They never tell you how you do. It's just if you get in, you get a phone call saying, you're going to be on Jeopardy. Has that ever been an ambition of yours? No. No. Although it's funny, my mother and grandmother watched it every day of my life. And I remember sort of consciously knowing it was on and sometimes piping in with questions. And then I moved out. And many, many years later, when I had some surgery that I needed to recover from on my spine, I went back for a couple weeks and they were watching Jeopardy. And suddenly I knew all the answers. And I said, well, they must be making the questions a lot easier now and my mother said no you're just much older now much smarter well retaining trivia that's that's my specialty i guess that's half of running a podcast is retaining trivia Mm -hmm. that's why we're here yeah i have two friends who've been on jeopardy Mm -hmm. and both women and both smarter than i am and uh, neither of them won but they did it pretty well nobody did an epic fail like cajun but it's tough and you're in the bright lights there, and you've got your 22 minutes. It's, it's really hard. I read Ken Jennings' book there, and you know he says half of it is just doing the timing of hitting that button at the right moment because mm-hmm. you can't do it before he finishes reading the question or you get locked out. So the strategy of Jeopardy. So hats off to people who dare to go on these uh, quiz shows, and you know sometimes it's just not your night. I have repeated dreams that I am a contestant on Have I Got News For You, and I never do well in these dreams, so I don't know what that means. Are you on Paul's team, or are you on oh, Ian's team? Oh, I, I don't really... I think I guess I'm on Paul's team. How could you go wrong being on Paul's I, team? I know, but I can't answer the questions in my dream, and it's always that show. Well, I guess that's one of the few quiz shows I watch, so that's why. The but... thing is, you don't even have to answer the questions. You just have to mm-hmm. be funny. I know. Just come up with that great funny thing. The audience loves you. 
Of course, it is tough when you're next to Paul Merton, but... Well, I know what certain dreams, like if you lose your teeth, means you are insecure, this or that, but I don't know what it means if you constantly dream you're doing unwell on uh, Have I Got News For You. So well, if our listener knows, he can write in and yes. find out. So what's on TV for the week of February 3rd through the 9th? On Wednesday, BBC Two has the next installment of the Jonathan Meads documentary series Off Kilter, his different look at Scottish life. Thursday on BBC One, Material Girl continues, followed by another two-part Silent Witness. BBC Two's comedy track starts with topical news quiz Mock the Week, then Rab C. Nesbitt and Bellamy's People. Season three of Secret Diary of a Call Girl with Ms. Billy Piper continues on ITV2 at 10 p.m. Alas, it was beaten in the ratings last week by Skins on E4. I haven't watched the new season yet. I will do so. I've watched Billy interview the real Belle du Jour, Brooke Magnanti. On TV? Yeah, they did a half hour. They actually hour. showed her? Yes. Oh, They wow. had a little She's sit really down and... come had, out of the closet. Billy interviewed her, and she... Billy had met her very secretly years earlier, but they had a good old chat about this and that, some girl talk. Who showed that? I think it was... ITV. I'm, I'm not sure. Whichever station oh, is cool. showing this I'd show. I'd like to see that. Yeah. Neat. Most excellent. I'll bring it over for you. Alan Carr, Chatty Man, returns to Channel 4 with guests Ricky Gervais and Katie Price, a.k.a. Jordan. Friday on BBC One, there is another installment of beloved quiz show QI, followed by the conclusion of this week's mystery on Silent Witness. Have we talked lately about how great QI is? We love QI. I think we've always talked every about QI. Did I tell you this? When it got picked on the best shows of the decade, mm-hmm. or it was like number five or whatever like that, they said that originally it was supposed to be Michael Palin was going to be the host, Stephen Fry would be the smarty team, yep, and Alan Davies would be the dummies team. And they're getting ready to film, and Michael Palin's not going to do it. And John Lloyd just says, Stephen, just, just be the MC. We've got to record the pilot. BBC's got to see this thing. This format's actually going to work. You just, just go and read the cards. It's all on the cards. And five minutes in, they said, oh, well, this is clearly the way to go, is to have Stephen be the MC and just have four people on this as contestants. Well, I knew it was supposed to be Stephen's team against Alan's team. I didn't know that Michael Palin had been picked to be the host. Have you seen the pilot? Because I have. No. It's interesting because they had no set, so they used really beautiful lighting. And Eddie Azard was a contestant, which he's never been on the broadcast version. But oh. the, the pilot is a DVD extra for the first series. So. Oh, cool. Highly recommended. And as usual, we would love to get it shown here in the United States. So if you're a broadcaster, get QI. On Channel 4, Jimmy Carr's quiz show, 8 out of 10 Cats, continues. Friday night with Jonathan Ross on BBC One includes guests John Barrowman, Bollywood actor Sharuka Khan, Sharuka Khan, and Lorraine Kelly. Saturday, Harry Hill's TV Burp is on ITV One. The debut last week was seen by 6.6 million viewers. They love Harry Hill. Sunday, Like Rise to Candleford continues on BBC One. Overnight TV One, Wild at Heart continues. And on BBC Three, more of the second series of Being Human. And on BBC One, starting at 10.55pm, you can watch the Super Bowl live! Hey. But they won't have any of the ads! That's the whole point of the Super Bowl, is to watch the ads. 
Wow. Yeah, they didn't show it when I was living there in 93. It was on satellite or something like that, so it's kind of cool. They've got mm. it on the main channel. There is a British angle. The Who will be providing the halftime entertainment. It's probably going to be a little bit like watching baseball in Japan. I was uh, in Japan once when the World Series was on, and you got the Japanese feed on NHK. And when they would go to commercial in America, they would just keep the cameras rolling. And so you'd see the players throw the ball back and forth. The commentators would be talking in Japanese about it. And it was like being in the stadium because there's no ads on NHK, just like there's no ads on the BBC. And then they would go back. And if you had the American audio on there, you would actually get the Fox audio when they came back from commercial. But it was very interesting to see a baseball game without commercials. Yeah. So if you're in England, you can see the Super Bowl, but you're not seeing the Super Bowl experience. It'll also be over about three o'clock in the morning. So, I wonder if they'll take that opportunity to promote nacho chips and beers and pop like all our circular adverts are full of this week, too, for the grocery stores. The grocery stores in America love, love, love to push junk food the week of Super Bowl Sunday. I haven't so. noticed that. I don't think I've oh. actually been in the store for the last week, so... Well, it's the flyers you get. I mean, it's oh. here's your tray, here's your sale on chips and beer and pop and hmm. everything. So, are you going to watch the Super Bowl? No, no, never have. A DVR, and if something interesting happens or you know someone's breast gets exposed again, you know I've got that to see it, and and I usually zip through and look at the ads. Monday, the documentary series The Lakes continues on ITV One. At 9 p.m. on BBC One, Hustle continues, and that'll be the last episode. Oh. They just had episode five this week. Well, they're probably getting ready for the Olympics. That's coming real soon. Law & Order UK is on ITV One, and Channel 4 continues Tower Block of Commons with the MPs living in council flats around England documentary series. Have to do a special topic on council flats sometime. I have lived in a council flat. I I have many, many stories. I never really could wrap my head around what they were, so I did some research, and it's very interesting. And since so many British television shows reference them or are set in them, we should do that sometime. I'd be happy to tell you all my horror stories of living in a council flat. Channel 5 has Paul Merton in Europe. Tuesday Survivors continues on BBC One. And Shameless continues on Channel 4. So, in this country, on BBC America this week, Friday night, it's Chat Show Night with Friday Night with Jonathan Ross and The Graham Norton Show. Saturday, it's the final episode of Demons. Week after next, Survivors comes on. Monday, new episodes of Top Gear. Wednesday, The Inbetweeners, now on its third night in three weeks. Stop moving it around the schedule. Don't you hate when they do that? Oh, yeah. I keep looking worse than this week. Oh, it's on Wednesday. PBS's Masterpiece Classic on Sunday is the last part of Jane Austen's Emma, which my mother is quite enjoying. She thought Romola Gary's decision to play Emma is not particularly likable all the time, was very brave and interesting, and she's loving Michael Gambon, so thumbs up for Mom. Oh, excellent. I, I liked it quite a bit, too. The Independent Film Channel is showing the third season of the Johnny Vegas BBC comedy set entirely in his flat, Ideal, weeknights at 2 a.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific. I like Ideal, don't you? Mm, it's all right. I thought you liked Johnny Vegas a lot. I like Johnny Vegas. I haven't really gotten into Ideal, though. 
I didn't watch the first season, but then I got into it more of it. Basically, he's kind of a low-grade pot dealer, mm-hmm. and everything takes place in his flat or, or the door right outside. I guess sometimes you get to the top of the stairs there, and just people are coming and going. He's got these two Christian evangelicals who are remodeling his bathroom, and of course, he has to keep the whole drug thing low. He, he had a girlfriend who had a baby, but it wasn't his baby, but she was living there for a while. So yeah, Ideal is just this kind of strange thing, like BBC Three, well, we're going to talk you through the whole BBC thing, but it's it's meant to be kind of a fringe, oddball sort of thing. But it's kind of cool that it's getting a showing. Uh, Independent Film Channel has shown it before. If you like weird, check it out. The fifth season of Shameless continues Friday on the Sundance Channel. And the third season of Billy Piper's Secret Diary of a Call Girl is Mondays on Showtime. On Adult Swim on Friday night, starting at midnight, is their British comedy block, starting with The Office, the British one, of course, Look Around You, The Mighty Boosh, and Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Dark Place had a brief run on the Sci-Fi Channel, and it stars Matthew Holness, Richard Iowade, and Matt Berry, some of whom you may have seen on the IT crowd. And The Mighty Boosh. Yes. My review at the time was, nobody loves crappy TV and parodies of crappy TV more than me, and this Channel 4 satire is positively inspired. The conceit is in the 1980s, Stephen King wannabe Garth Marenghi wrote, directed, produced, and starred in Dark Place, a thriller series set in a hospital that was so controversial that it never aired. But now, Marenghi is back and able to introduce his magnum opus to the world, complete with the original Channel 4 logo. No touch is missed here. 80s TV cliches have never been set up so perfectly, as well as ultra-low-budget incompetence. It's like if Ed Wood had done television, and the bad acting and sexism has to be seen to be believed. Yeah, it's pretty great. I I must agree. Although, I like it in small little chunks. I don't think I'd watch all six episodes back-to-back. Well, it's on once a week, so... Yeah, it's great fun. But it's nice that Adult Swim is showing that. And Adult Swim is doing very well. I saw a statistic that their 11.30 to 12.30 block is only one-tenth of a rating point behind NBC for viewers 18 to 49. They're doing pretty well. Uh, Mostly that's Robot Chicken and Venture Brothers and things like that. People wonder, where do the audiences all go? They went to cable. Newsflash. DVD releases. Doctor Who, the complete specials box set, which includes The Next Doctor, Planet of the Dead, Waters of Mars, and The End of Time. My copy's on its way. Mm-hmm. It includes commentaries for The End of Time, Doctor Who Confidentials, Doctor Who at the Proms, Deleted Scenes, David Tennant's Video Diaries, Comic-Con Coverage, and the BBC Christmas Idents. It's available in regular flavor and Blu-ray, and you can also buy the stories individually. I watched the commentaries. Just on my computer, I played them while I played the episodes with the sound turned down. The BBC and... Seven ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're on iTunes, you can subscribe to Doctor Who Commentaries. And as soon as an episode goes out, you will have a commentary track, usually done by the producers and the writers, talking about the episode. It's free, folks. They're giving this away. And you might want to save those because I've heard that there's only commentary tracks here on the end of time. David Mm -hmm. Tennant recorded it. But the other three episodes don't have one. Oh. Which, for a box set, is a little weak. Yeah. But I'm doing my bit and supporting it, so I will have a copy. Doc Martin Series 3 is out on DVD. It's the fish-out-of-water ITV drama starring Martin Clunes as a doctor who relocates to Cornwall. The listener feedback. Michael in the UK, 
near Cambridge, he says, writes, I'm writing to let you know about a web show Robert Llewellyn, Red Dwarf, is doing where he drives people around in his car and has a chat interview. I'm working my way through them, but you may find them interesting. He has interviews with Abe Edmondson, Jonathan Ross, Danny John Jules, Arthur Smith, Nigel Planner, Joe Brand, David Mitchell, Stephen Fry, Patrick Stewart, and many others. You can find it here www.lutube.com. That's L-L-E-W-T-U-B-E. We'll have a link in our show notes. That sounds really cool. Sounds fun. Oh, yeah. Boy, that sounds second only to being driven around in Stephen Fry's taxi. So thank you, Michael, for letting us know and for subscribing to our podcast. He discovered it because I did a podcast panel at a convention last month, and I was recorded and put on the internet and then caused a huge Ferrari because people thought we were slagging off other people's audio dramas. The woman who put it up there had to take it down. But before she did, Michael found out about it because I shamelessly plugged this podcast and subscribed because he wanted to find out what people outside the UK think about British television. Well, I think the short answer is we love it. Mm-hmm. That's why we're here. BBC One, BBC Two, BBC Three, BBC Four, BBC Five, BBC Six, BBC Seven, BBC Heaven. And the feature, which I suggested, although I think Ryan will have more to say than me because he's thought about it more. <laughs> than my, we, for me, it was mostly no a question here, is... BBC One versus BBC Two, and we can even touch on three and four, and what's the difference? Why are the ratings so different? And how is this like PBS? The first I sort of figured out that there was a difference was I was over in England for quite some time, and there, and I think it was, they think it's all over, but I could be wrong, had just moved from BBC Two to BBC One. And so Have I Got News For You was about to start its fall run. So they were running all these adverts that were just Angus and Paul and Ian sitting on a couch staring at a phone. And the subtext was they were hoping it would ring so that they would also be transferred over to BBC One. And I was curious, is that a prestige thing or would that come with more money as well, both for you and the show or... It's definitely prestige. Mm-hmm. BBC Two is considered the minor leagues. BBC One is the main channel. Now, if you're an American, for example, and you go to England and you pick up a copy of the Radio Times and you thumb through it, you would see no difference between BBC One and BBC Two. It would seem all the mm-hmm. same to you. Exactly. But in England, there is a huge perception difference. But here's a good example. Most people did not know that Absolutely Fabulous existed until it got bumped to BBC One. It would have been a big hit on BBC Two, but the perception was, oh, it's an alternative comedy. It's on BBC Two. And it wasn't until it got promoted to BBC One that it really took off and got you know 10 million viewers. The most popular shows on BBC Two are uh, Top Gear and back when it was running, Red Dwarf. Mm-hmm. But normally they get three or four million viewers, even though they ostensibly seem to be running the same kind of programs. And I think a lot of it is perception that it's the art stuff, it's the alternative stuff. If it was that good, why isn't it on BBC One kind of thing? And I would think that it's very similar to the attitude here with public television. Everybody in America gets public television. I'm yeah. sure every city has a PBS station. You have it on your cable. You might even have more than one PBS station right. in your cable. In New York, they've got four. Right. And yet... Ratings on PBS are 
very, very low compared to just about any other channel unless they're running a Ken Burns documentary. And then suddenly everyone discovers, hey, there's a PBS channel. Mm-hmm. Now you can make a case that it's because PBS sucks because of the way it's funded, unlike the BBC where they have their mandatory tax. But I think there's also this perception that, that oh, it's, that's where foreign stuff is on or that's where the, the culture stuff's on there. It's the stuff that's good for you. They don't run entertainment on PBS. And so no one ever really looks there to find shows. And it becomes this sort of perception of this ghetto. And I think in England, they have the same thing with BBC Two, that it's not where the good shows are. And I've got to admit, I've got a bit of a bias that way too right now when it comes to BBC Three and BBC Four. These are their new digital channels. They're available if you have a digital tuner over the air or if you have cable, you can get them. They're free. And it really are sort of the testing labs for the BBC. It's kind of funny if you watch 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was made in 1968, they're being interviewed on BBC Seven. Mm. Which is a radio, but no, not on television. That's <laughs> no, Radio Seven, which is different than BBC Seven. Yes. Yeah. BBC Four is definitely the fringe channel. They don't even do the terrestrial ratings compared to the multi-channel ratings. You know, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV One, Channel Four, and Channel Five are terrestrial broadcasters. You can get them over the air with a TV. Uh, they are rated as main channels. And then ITV2, Dave, BBC3, BBC4 are all considered multi-channels along with the Sky One. Mm-hmm. And they are they exist in their own little ratings universe. And there's BBC, BBC HD. Now, I find it very odd that the highest rated show on BBC HD is probably Doctor Who, and it gets about 600,000 viewers. And I can't quite understand why HD is considered kind of a novelty in England. Pretty much the entire history of television, Britain has been ahead of the United States. You know, PAL is obviously a more superior transmission system than NTSC is. It's got more lines per inch. The color is better. You know, the joke about NTSC is it's never twice the same color. And the BBC puts a lot of money into research and development. You know, they had digital radio where if you were, had the right kind of equipment, you could be listening to the radio and it would tell you the name of the song and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. They've had CFAX for about 20 years, which is like, it was like the internet on your television. You would have pages of information and you could type in different numbers and you would get sports results and news and information and things like that. And this was, they were just using the unused bandwidth that was part of broadcast television. We have never had that in the United States. We have closed captioning. That's that's all we they use the bandwidth for here. And HD is a real novelty in Britain, whereas, well, virtually all terrestrial broadcasting in America, you know, because we switched over from analog to mm-hmm. digital last year, it's all HD. Now, some of it is downgraded by your cable system so you can get it. But if you're watching television over the air now, you're watching high definition even if you're watching it on, on a standard-definition TV, you're getting a high-definition signal. But not a lot of people in England are getting high-definition yet. They're really behind the times there. And so the high-definition channel switches back and forth between sometimes feeding BBC One and sometimes feeding BBC Two. Not everything... Uh, EastEnders is not shown in high-definition, for example. And Doctor Who was only just started showing high-definition with Planet of the Dead. Okay. They apparently couldn't afford to do it in high definition before that. So it's Doctor Who was done in standard definition up until Planet of the Dead, which is kind of weird because let's say in in America here, I think almost every primetime 
entertainment program has been done in high definition for at least the last three years. So they're all done in 16.9 widescreen high definition TV. I have it at high definition TV. I think Extreme Makeover is the only thing that I see and maybe America's home, Funniest Home Videos are still 4.3 standard definition shows. But everything else is done in widescreen here. And apparently the difference was the cost. Uh, Torchwood has always been done in high definition. So that was why BBC America bought it because they wanted to launch their high definition service with it. And it was a big deal that Torchwood was in high definition, but Doctor Who wasn't. And the reasoning was, well, it's so more expensive to do the effects in high definition. I'm thinking, you know, come on, this is, uh, we're, we're in the second decade here of the 21st century here. I shoot high definition. This podcast is recorded on my high definition camcorder. Mm-hmm. I make movies in high definition. It's not that hard. And yet for the BBC, I guess they probably had a lot of standard definition equipment around there and were kind of loath to invest in new equipment and switching over. I'd have to think about who got stereo first. Stereo started here in the late 80s. Actually, Max Headroom was shown in stereo in the second season, so that's 85. Although there were still channels that weren't going to st- You'd have the infamous in stereo, we're available, captioned at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, everybody gets uh, stereo. Uh, I think in England it was a lot later. I think it was the late 90s before they were doing stereo television transmissions. So again, they were kind of lagging behind there. I just saw a thing for the ratings that the Doctor Who fans are now claiming that the End of Time Part 2 on New Year's Day was the number one show of the week. And the reason is they combined the ratings for BBC One and BBC HD together, which was just enough to put it over EastEnders. Uh Uh-huh. But the BBC doesn't consider it that way. They consider those two separate channels, even if it's simulcasting. And it's interesting to me that there's that distinction there because I guess, you know, the high definition is considered a multi-channel channel. It's not the real BBC. You know, BBC One is the flagship. And they spend a lot of time, you know, making it their flagship. You know, basically BBC One is in competition with ITV One. I mean, they're, they are... When people say, what's on the other side, they mean, you know, ITV if you're watching BBC or vice versa. You know, Channel 4 is, you know, kind of a fringe broadcaster. And the same thing with BBC Two. And I think a lot of people might be ignoring things on BBC Two because it's BBC Two. You know, if there's a drama on and it's on BBC Two, it just doesn't have the cachet that if it's on BBC One. You know, David Tennant's Hamlet was on BBC Two. Now, partially, it might be because BBC One doesn't want to give up three hours of prime time. But then something like Emma, which was shown on BBC One. Yeah, it seems like there's also, even after the watershed, a drive to make BBC One a little more genteel. I know that when Little Britain re-recorded parts of its sketches to make them slightly less offensive, and in some cases put a completely new sketch in there for its BBC One broadcast versus the repeats that would go on BBC Two. That could have been a gimmick, too. I'd have to think about whether the standards are different. Uh, BBC Two, yeah, pretty much can do anything after the watershed. I don't know if it's in terms of they'd be fined by their, their FCC or whatever governing... Oxfam, I guess. Oxfam. <laughs> it's not Oxfam. Oxfam. It's Oxfam. What is it? No, Oxfam is the, is the charity shops. All right. There was a lot of talk when I think it was the just the second series. It They were very proud that they sort of jumped right over BBC Two to BBC One, Little Britain, because of its popularity. It had run on BBC Three. It had repeated on BBC Two. That's where it really caught on. So the second series they were moving, they were going to have their initial 
show each week on BBC One and then repeat on BBC Two, but they did. They re-recorded a few lines here and there that they felt were too rude for BBC One, and they even took some sketches out once or twice during the run completely and put something all new in there. It could have been that there were different standards on that. Yeah. Uh, you started by talking about, have I got news for you? I think it took them, what, 15 years. They did finally get the mm-hmm. jump to BBC One. They did. Part of that was sort of help when they moved the news to 10 o'clock. Because BBC One news, you know, the news at 9, nine. the 9 o'clock news was locked in there. So Monday through Friday, you couldn't get that time slot. So when they moved to 10 o'clock, that obviously opened up a, a space for them. Oh, and there's the fairly new... Situation two, where they are premiering things like Graham Norton show, Have I Got News For You, on BBC One. And then for the repeat, they're expanding it. And yeah, they showed an expanded version a couple days later. BBC Two. Which is kind of cool, actually. Yeah. The idea is that BBC One is not supposed to show a lot of repeats. Mm-hmm. Although they seem to be a lot of episodes of Aloha Alo and keeping up appearances that keep showing up time to time, but usually not in prime time. But... Part of the BBC's image is, you know, why, because they have, constantly have to justify the license fee, is, look, we're giving you new programming all the time, seven days a week, even though a lot of it's American, and they show a lot of Hollywood movies, too. You can look at any night of the schedule. Whereas BBC Two, you know, the, a lot of repeats of things like that, and then they recycle stuff for BBC Four. I, I noticed that they're going to repeat the David Attenborough series Life on BBC Four again here, starting next week, mm-hmm. after its BBC One run. So, And they're repeating the... Doctor Who's... There's a whole Doctor Who repeat schedule on BBC4 right now. Uh, showing David Tennant episodes. So it's a good opportunity for them to do that. And you know, c- clear the way so the BBC1 gets this perception of, you know, it's all new. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the stuff we're really pouring a lot of money and resources into. And giving you the very best in television. Because, you know, they're constantly in this ratings war with ITV1. Yeah, well, I had also noticed more than one comedian who's... I can't think of specifically who but who had mentioned that if they weren't on B- if it wasn't on BBC one their parents didn't know it existed sort of thing so they were very happy when may, it could have even been David Williams you know talking about getting to move to BBC one and that was a big deal so that was why I thought of the topic I hate to throw this broad generalization around because I have not interviewed everybody in England <laughs> but yeah I think among you know the, the middle class home county British audience there is this sort of perception that you know, we watch BBC One, but we don't watch BBC Two. You know, it's 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 not quite commercial television, but it's you know lower common denominator. Here's a, here's a shock for people: snobism still exists in England. You know, <laughs> they still have a class system, and and there's a perception of stuff. I I saw this once when I went to a convention that was held at a holiday camp. Now, the whole holiday camp experience is something very unique to England. We do not have it in the United States. If you've seen The Prisoner, though, the original Prisoner, that is a holiday camp. And allegedly, it was based on the fact that after people came back from the war, they wanted to replicate the camaraderie and experience of being in a prisoner of war camp. And so you you lived in huts and you had PA announcers telling you what's going on and stuff like that. And this was very popular in the 50s for uh, working class families to go to these resorts, and it was all inclusive. So you paid a fee, and you had room and board, and all the food you could eat, and mm-hmm. all the stuff, and they had activities. And it was all very, very upbeat and happy. There's a famous sitcom called Heidi High yep. that kind of relives those old days. And The Prisoner, with its very cheerful female announcer in the morning, was uh, kind of a parody of that sort of thing. 
So anyway, that's what a holiday camp is. And there was this very large Star Trek convention, and it was up in the north, and there weren't really, really good venues, and so they decided to have it at a holiday camp. And it was the middle of summer, so it was perfectly fine. And I saw a couple middle-class Star Trek fans who would not stay there. They stayed in Morecambe and stayed in a hotel and would commute in there because they refused to do it. They, middle-class people did not go to holiday camps. This had been beaten into them as children, and they just they, they couldn't do it. That's a shame. I had an awfully good time my few nights I spent in Blackpool one year. <laughs> At a holiday camp? No, but oh, Blackpool is also considered where you go if you can't afford Spain that year in some regards. It's and, a working class mm-hmm. vacation city, like Atlantic City would be here. Yeah. I mean, you know. Big fun, though. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, it's a little kitschy, but, you know, that's kind of part of the fun. One thing I will say that's superior about uh, British conventions in general is... They typically, video room is in one of the bars. And when I say a bar, I'm talking like a huge function room that Mm -hmm. holds like 300 people. And they'll have a screen set up in front. And in the back, there's a working bar. So you can sit there and order a pint and sit there and be watching old Star Trek episodes, you know, in the video room of this convention, drinking beer. Cool. You can't do that in the United States, that's for sure. I guess I'd say get off your high horse and, and watch other channels would be my advice, but I'm sure no one who believes that is going to be listening to this podcast probably. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, when's the last time you watch PBS? That'll well, be you. I'm just talking in general to the people in the audience here. I can't diss PBS. I'm contractually bound not to. And well, no. Provide part of my bread and butter when I'm... We, we all have our biases. I, I guess it's, it's only to be fair, but you would be surprised that as an American, the difference is being BBC One and BBC Two. Well, I think I understand it a little better because it was curious to me. Yeah, it's the two it's, side by side television stations were so different. It's perception and reality, and sometimes they're, they it becomes the same thing. If I were living over there, I'd always be on BBC Three. I'd want to see what the new, up and coming thing was. Versus the state old accepted well, things. you and I are basically evangelists for British television. And yes. part of that is we are constantly, we are like sharks going through the water, constantly looking for the latest new thing. And that is a really kind of cool attitude to have of saying, what's out there that's new? What is the freshest stuff? What's, what, what am I not seeing? I have a problem with a lot of people, and this is especially for science fiction fans, who they only want more of what they already like. And a really good example of that is I started a Doctor Who club here in Seattle 25 years ago. It still exists. And back when it started, they were still making Doctor Who. So, you know, half the year we had new episodes to show. And, and then, of course, there was old episodes we could be running, and black and white episodes were still new to people, and so we had those kind of things. But by 1989, we had sort of run out of things to watch. And so I showed up one week and said, well, I've got this new thing for you to watch. And they're like, oh, people are complaining and moaning. And I said, look, it's going to be an hour long. Once you get through that, I'll show you some, you know, Curse of Peladon or something like that. And they're like, but just sit through this program for an hour, okay? Do me a favor. And it was the first two episodes of Red Dwarf. Mm-hmm. And like I say, before I started doing that, you could not believe the bitching and moaning. Because oh, it's not Doctor Who. We came here to see Doctor Who. I said, well, try something new. And of course, by the end of it, it's like, do you have more of these? Mm-hmm. And of course, we showed the whole first 12 episodes. And then it showed up on PBS a couple months later, and the rest is history. And we got to the point where we had to, during the 90s and the first half of this uh, century, 
of having to show non-Doctor Who stuff because there isn't any yeah. out there. And so the remaining people who come to our meetings every week get to see new stuff and they expect new stuff and they don't always know what's going to be, but they sort of trust us that, you know, we haven't let you down in the past, or at least too often, and run new programs. Getting people into this vibe of try something new, try it, you'll like it, you know. I remember the first time I saw Blackadder. And the only reason I saw it was I was at a convention and it was an episode that Tom Baker was in. It was Potato. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea who Rowan Atkinson was. I just knew, hey, Tom Baker's in this new sitcom. And that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And then I saw another episode. And I came back home telling everybody, I have seen this great, great British sitcom called Blackadder. And a friend of mine says, oh, I've got episodes from Canada. And she sent me the whole second season. And the thing that went off in my head was, what other shows out there don't I know about that are probably really as cool as this? And last there weren't any because it was Blackadder. No, of course, yeah. there was plenty of them. And I wasn't like, I, you know, I was watching the young ones because MTV was showing them in comic strip and other things like that. But it really piqued my interest of, you know, what's over that hill? What's, you know, I like the shows I'm liking and I'm, I'm happy to enjoy those. But what is new? What's out there? And if I do anything with this podcast, it's to get people to try something new. You know, if you've never seen a Jonathan Meads documentary Watch it. Maybe you won't like it, but maybe you will. You know, that's the shows that we point out for you here each week are things that we find amusing. It may not be for everybody. You know, you may not find Silent Witness good or Material Girl, or maybe you're a big EastEnders fan. Uh, Christy and I just don't have time to watch, you know, EastEnders. Give them a shot. I like to think that I have the most eclectic taste of anybody in the world because I will watch something silly like Harry Hill and then, you know, Lark Rise to Candleford, which is a BBC costume drama set in the 19th century. You know, I couldn't think of two completely different programs. But I like them. I like the actors and I like documentaries. I like so much stuff. And I'm just trying to, you know, share my enthusiasm for all these different shows and get people to really check something out. You know, it's okay to watch something and say, it's not my thing. You know, there's a lot of new TV shows running here in the United States right now. You know, Caprica just started, which is a sequel to Battlestar Galactica. It's also running in the UK. Some people got into Galactica, other people didn't because they either remember the crappy old 70s series or just they aren't into sci-fi, you know, fair enough. I always like to check out new shows and decide, you know, am I going to watch this show or not in my rare free time. So that's, that's my feeling about this whole thing. Yeah, I enjoy being past uh, the tender age of 40 and still being the one at work that everybody knows can unroot the good stuff. And turn everyone on to something new and exquisite and exciting. I, but it's cool. They're open yeah. to that. They're not just bugging you saying, yeah. you know, Dave, you got the new series of Top Gear. You know, mm -hmm. I really love the show. It's like, it's like, hey, what does Chrissy have in her bag this week? And you've got something cool for them. I got one gal into the Mighty Boosh and she showed it to her 11-year-old nephew. And he had her make a mirror ball suit like Noel Fielding does as Vince for one of the episodes. And he wore the mirror ball suit to school, this 11-year-old, for Halloween this year. So Wow. My my influences I've, I've, I've seen I don't know this little child but I saw the picture of him you're corrupting 11 year olds I am it's great though wow well next week I want to talk about the fall and rise of Saturday Night Television I have this documentary which I'm going to loan you it was called Who Killed Saturday Night Television and it was made in 2004 I think I saw it actually but I'll watch it again yes, in um, case 
I did not. Which is a very important year because up until that point, much like in the United States, well, I'm old enough to remember when Saturday Night in the United States was the best night on television. Mm -hmm. You had MASH, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Bob Newhart. Somehow or another, the networks got this idea that became a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy of nobody watches TV on Saturday nights. And now you get repeats and cops and... I mean, you know, they don't even bother you to show movies now. It's mm-hmm. terrible. In England, it was the same way until 2005. And what happened in 2005? Doctor mm-hmm. Who came back. Hey, Doctor Who, yeah. We are going to talk about taking back the whole history of Saturday Night Television. It was huge in the 60s and 70s. The joke, of course, was if you were to go into a time machine and go back to the 1970s and say, hey, what's popular on Saturday nights? Oh, Doctor Who and Bruce Forsythe. Mm-hmm. You say, wait a second, that's what's on in 2010. How can this be? But the in-between things, things really went badly. And Saturday night was filled with a lot of junk. And we'll take you through the high points and the junk and then how it came back to life again. And maybe it could happen here in the United States. Because it certainly is a night now where it's like, hey, what's on HBO? Or let's go rent a movie. Or watch British TV. <laughs> Sounds good. That's that's my evenings at home. I'm, I must admit, I don't really watch any American television anymore. I'm sure there's plenty of good stuff. I watch way too much of it. So I, I prefer my British television. Again, I, I think I'm a victim of the fact that I like everything. Oh. There's so much stuff that I want to see, and I try to be picky. Like I don't, you know, I don't watch soaps. I don't watch any police procedurals at all. I uh, don't watch reality shows, but there's still, you know, a lot of good dramas. I mean, there's there's good stuff out there. You know, Mad Men and 30 Rock. I managed to get through all the way through The Wire, which mm-hmm. is very popular in England. I've yet to see The Sopranos. Big Love on HBO. I mean, there's a reason why HBO does a lot of co-production with the BBC. You know, they both kind of have captive paying audiences and they can take the time and know the audience has the patience to watch a series that may not immediately grab you, but you get sucked into those are all fine shows, and I have to find time for all those, too. So, lots, lots to watch. Okay. I'm going to try to watch some stuff next, next week. set up next week pretty well, so. I'm going to be homeless next week, so if I, if I play my cards right, I will have a VCR and a lot of tapes with me, and I'm going to sit there in my hotel room and watch stuff all day. Okay, and well, you can always come over to my place if you want to hang out. Well, you have your kitty, too, though, to take yes. care of in the hotel. Or I may be working like I am this week. I've just been really busy, but you know, you got to make money in this world. Thanks everyone for listening. Why don't you come to our website, www.britishtvpodcast.com, where you can uh, find links to news items. You can read the show notes here. We'll have links to stuff. Uh, what's on TV this week. You can find the archive of old shows. We now have links to various blogs that are British related. There's tons of them out there. And you can send us feedback at feedback at BritishTVPodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments or suggestions or criticisms or anything, we can take it. So we'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back next week. Next week. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Peace.